The more that I meditated upon this text, the more convinced I became that it is massively important to our understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have been in the faith for just a brief time. Maybe you are in the middle of your very first reading through the Old Testament and it, it's just hard to understand. And it seems so radically different from what you hear in the New Testament and you wonder how the same God could have revealed both and how they relate to one another. I want you to know that you're not alone. This question of the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New and the law and the Gospel is one that has perplexed the church for centuries. We know that it was the question in the early church because much of the New Testament is dedicated to providing an answer. I mean, entire letters are written to try to unwrap the mystery of the relationship between the law and the gospel. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews all address the topic extensively. In fact, the question of the gospel and its relationship to the law threatened to split the church from its earliest days. It was this question that the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 was convened to decide. And even though we have no shortage of apostolic teaching on the subject, clarity and consensus has been elusive throughout the history of the church. Before this week, if I were asked to try to delve into the question of how we're to understand the law and its function in the New Testament church today, I more than likely would have turned to a place like Romans 4 or Galatians 3 or Hebrews 9 and 10, but now I am convinced that Mark 7 is the place to begin. In this dialogue that we're going to unpack in verses 1 to 23, First with the Pharisees and the scribes, verses 1 to 13, then with the crowd, verses 14 to 16, and then with Jesus' own disciples in verses 17 to 23, Jesus addresses the fundamental problem of the human heart, which is the defilement of sin. He addresses the wrong way to deal with the problem of the human heart, that is, externally by works of the law. And by implication, he gives us the right way to address the defilement of the human heart, that is, internally, by faith and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And he does so, interestingly, on the basis entirely of the Old Testament, truth that could be found in the law of Moses and in the prophets. And furthermore, you will find that Jesus acts as if this should have been clear, not only to the Pharisees and the scribes who were experts in the Old Testament, but according to verse 18, he acts as if it should have been abundantly clear to his disciples who were just run-of-the-mill, ordinary, first-century Jews. In other words, Jesus did not bring to Israel a new gospel a new plan of salvation, a new way that sinners could be made right with God. Saints of the Old Testament 
were justified in the very same way as the saints of the New Testament, in the same way that we are justified. By grace, through faith, in the blood and righteousness of a substitute. See, according to Jesus in this passage, there has only ever been one fundamental problem, and that's the defilement of sin. And there has only ever been one solution, and that is the gospel of grace. So this morning, I want to walk through this passage by breaking it down into four sections, and then we'll conclude by answering the pressing question that is raised by this text. The question of this is this, if the law cannot cleanse the human heart of sin, then what can? What hope is there for sinners who cannot produce the righteousness that the law requires? What hope is there for us this morning? if indeed we are as evil as Jesus says we are in this passage. Well, we'll begin by looking at the offense that provoked Jesus' discourse on tradition and the Torah. Verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Two points will help us to understand what's going on in this encounter. Number one, the issue at stake here is not one of personal hygiene, but of ritual defilement. Okay, the Pharisees are not grossed out because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. They were not concerned about germs and bacterial infections. Okay, so let's just establish this now. Leviticus 28 tells you that you ought to wash your hands several times a day with soap because it's gross not to. That's just not what this passage is about. Okay? The issue that had the scribes and the Pharisees all twisted into knots concerned ritual defilement and ritual cleansing. In Jewish thought, okay, based upon the Torah, the Torah is the Old Testament law, ritual defilement was something external to us that was transmitted from one person to another person, or from one person to an object, or from one object to a person. It had nothing to do with sin, but rather with a state of ceremonial purity that affected whether or not one could come into the congregation of the people and dwell in the midst of the Lord who was among them. For instance, in the Torah, a leper was ritually defiled and unclean. So was a menstruating woman. 
If they touched another person, that person contracted their defilement and was also rendered unclean and could not come into the congregation. In addition, the house of a leper may be unclean, as well as the clothes stained by a bodily discharge or or even a clay pot touched by an unclean person. A dead body was unclean. And if a living person touched a dead body, the defilement of the dead body transferred to the living person, and that living person became unclean as well. And the only way to become clean again, to remove the ceremonial ritual defilement, was through ritual washings. And two different types are mentioned in this passage. If you look closely at verse 3, Mark says that the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. The Greek literally says unless they wash their hands with a fist, which is denoting a ritual hand washing in which water would be poured over a loosely cupped palm. In verse 4, though, he speaks of another kind. He says that they do not eat after returning from the marketplace unless they wash, aeon me baptizontai, unless they are baptized, unless they immerse themselves. This would be the immersion into a tank of water for the sake of ritual cleansing. This shows that in popular view, the marketplace was full of defilement. It was at the marketplace that you might run into Gentiles or tax collectors or sinners, and the defilement that you received in the marketplace was of such a type that washing your hands was not necessary. You had to plunge your whole body beneath the water. So the issue is not one of personal hygiene, but of ritual defilement. Now, this isn't the way that we normally think New Covenant people in the New Covenant church are not used to talking about ceremonial purity and ritual defilement. So let me read you a paragraph from a Jewish scholar named Jacob Neusner that might help us define the difference. Neusner writes, if you touch a reptile, you may not be dirty, but you are unclean. If you undergo a ritual immersion, you may not be free of dirt, but you are clean. A corpse can make you unclean, though it may not make you dirty. A rite of purification involving the sprinkling of water mixed with the ashes of a red heifer probably will not remove a great deal of dirt, but it will remove the impurity. You begin to see the difference here? We're not talking about hygiene. We're talking about a state of ceremonial ritual cleanness. The second point that we need to understand is that the issue in these verses is not one of Torah, that is Old Testament scripture, but the tradition of the elders. So we might ask, where in the law does it say that one must perform a rite of purification in order to eat? Well, it doesn't. Anywhere. The only time ritual washing of this sort is mentioned in the Torah is with reference to priests who were serving in the tabernacle, okay, Exodus 30, Exodus 40, Leviticus 22, or if a person touched a bodily discharge, Leviticus 15, 11. So where did this idea that every Jew must cleanse himself before every meal and indeed immerse himself if he was returning from the marketplace? Well, it comes from the halakha, 
which is the tradition of the elders. This was an oral tradition from centuries of rabbis who taught on the Torah that eventually was recorded and written down in a book called the Mishnah. This tradition of the elders emerged from the teaching of rabbis through the centuries who sought to improve upon the Torah by interpreting and applying it to every conceivable circumstance of life. The problem was that subsequent generations of scribes and rabbis considered the tradition to be as authoritative as the Torah itself, resulting in a functional inability to distinguish between the two. They couldn't distinguish between what Rabbi so-and-so had said in the 4th century and what Moses had said in Leviticus. As a result, the law which the scribes and the Pharisees considered binding upon all of Israel was absolutely enormous. This particular tradition probably arose from the belief that all of Israel should be a kingdom of priests and all food should be eaten as if it were priestly food. Therefore, all Israel should ritually purify themselves before every meal. Now that may sound noble perhaps, But it is sin to go beyond the bounds of Scripture and to bind the conscience of men where Scripture is silent. The Reformed doctrine of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture alone is sufficient as our rule of faith and practice, it was just as important to Jesus in the first century as it was to the Reformers in the 16th century, and it should be very important to us. It is wrong to add to the Bible, even if you're trying to improve upon the Bible by making the Bible more explicit and applying it in areas where it doesn't apply itself. It is this adding to Scripture and this elevating of tradition above Scripture that brings down Jesus' condemnation in the verses that follow. Verses 6 through 8. Jesus responds to their accusation. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I want you to notice carefully how Jesus argues in these verses. There's a progression here that I don't want you to miss. Jesus condemns them for teaching their traditions as if they were Scripture. The quotation comes from Isaiah 29.13, the last line of which Jesus uses to accuse the scribes and the Pharisees of teaching as doctrines, that is, teaching as Scripture the commandments of Men, okay? So they taught their traditions as if they were Scripture. The result of that was the elevating of their traditions above Scripture because they were more easily applied, they were more easily understood. In essence, then, abandoning the authority of Scripture. So Jesus says in verse 8, so they left the commandment of God to hold to the traditions of men. So first, they added their traditions to Scripture, Secondly, they then abandoned Scripture, and what they were left with 
was their traditions. Now, why did they do this? Well, people add to the scriptures in the misguided attempt to make them more explicit, more applicable, more precise, and more clear. This is a common and constant temptation in the church, and it happens still today. But why? Why would someone feel the need to elaborate upon Scripture, to go further than the Bible goes, and try to apply it to every single situation and circumstance? It's because we can become so focused upon the letter of the law that we miss the point of the law. And the point of the law is love for God and love for people. Now, Jesus made this abundantly clear when, during the week of his passion, a scribe came up to him in the temple courts and asked him what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus answered, this is Mark 12, 29, the most important is, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You see what just happened? The scribe comes up and says, which of all of these 614 commandments found in the Torah is the greatest? And Jesus goes directly to love for God and love for people. All of the other commandments lead to this one great end, that you would love God with all of your heart and that you would love people as yourself. And the particular scribe that Jesus was speaking to, he got it. Because he says to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Jesus says, no, 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 no. You misunderstood me. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices, those are super important too. No, Jesus saw that he had answered wisely and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You have understood that all of the law is designed to lead you to this one great end that you would love the one true God with all your heart and that you would love people as he does. The intent of the law All of it is to lead a person to God. Love of God is the end, the goal of the law, and with it the love of people. Therefore, if you keep all of the details, offer all of the sacrifices, keep all of the Sabbaths and all of the feasts, yet do not love God and do not love your neighbor, you've missed the point entirely. And what are you left as? Verse 6, Jesus says you've become a hypocrite. Just wearing a mask, playing a part that does not actually represent the reality of who you are. See, when someone misses the point of the law, they focus upon the letter of the law. And when they focus upon the letter of the law, inevitably they find the law vague, 
unclear and in need of elaboration and specification. And so they add to it. They add to it their traditions. But in adding to the law, they end up making the law about the letter. They end up making it a list of do's and don'ts that determine whether or not you're a good Christian or a bad Christian, accepted by God or rejected by God, rather than making the law about the love of God. And the result is, according to Jesus in verse 8, you end up leaving the commandment of God and all you're left with is holding with everything you have to the traditions of men. And you've become a Pharisee. I thought about this and thought of ways that this happens in the 21st century in the church today. And I came up with a couple of any number of examples I could choose from. But let me just mention two. I want you to imagine that a teenager asks his or her student pastor, how far is too far when it comes to my physical relationship with my girlfriend, boyfriend? What are they usually asking? Well, they want the pastor to define the law for them, to tell them exactly where the line is. Why? Because they want to go all the way up to the line and yet still be able to consider themselves a good Christian teenager. If they were really concerned about purity, they wouldn't even ask the question. If the student pastor responds by adding to Scripture and trying to elaborate where the Bible is silent, the Bible says, flee immorality. But if he tries to go through like I was taught, well, there are actually nine stages of a physical relationship. And really somewhere between stage three and stage four, that's probably where you ought to stop. What he's actually done is added a tradition to Scripture. And which of the two do you think the teenager is going to follow? The one that allows them to go the furthest. Rather, when asked how far is too far, the biblical response is, why do you ask me this? Is the command to be holy as I am holy not sufficient? If you love God, do you not desire purity? Don't you understand that it's only the pure in heart who will see God? Matthew 5, 8. I'm not going to give you lines. I'm not going to add to the scripture. What I will tell you is pursue purity and flee immorality. That's how you apply the intent of the law. Love for God. Be pure because you love God. Okay? Dress modestly because you love people. Well, how modest is modest? It's not the point. Be pure out of a love for God. If you ask me for details, suddenly the intent of the law, love for God and love for neighbor, becomes obscured, and it becomes about a checklist that you can keep. Let me take it out of the realm of dating relationships and put it into church members. A church member, let's say they ask me, does the Bible command me to tithe? Usually, not always, they are asking, how much do I have to give in order to be okay with God? 
Well, they want me to say, well, yes, if you give 10%, that, that should do it. You, you're, you'll be okay. That would give them a level to attain, something to achieve in order to feel good about themselves. And most importantly, it would give a ceiling to their generosity. Right? Don't have to go above that. And it would be easy for me to say in response to that question, yes, 10% should do it. And probably we wouldn't be facing the, magic, the, the massive budget shortfall that we face this year. In other words, it would probably work if by working we mean we would meet our budget. But what about your hearts? For generations in Baptist churches, people have tithed without loving God. No, the biblical response to the question, do I have to give 10% is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me, let me change the question from, do I have to give 10% to, where's your treasure? What does your giving say about what you value most, about what you love most, about what you actually worship? Do you love God? If so, don't you want to give generously that other people might know and love Him? Don't you want to launch an all-out assault uh, upon indwelling greed by, by means of the weapon of generosity and thereby avoid the senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin, 1 Timothy 6, 9? Don't ask me about percentages. The Bible doesn't deal in percentages in the New Covenant. It deals with hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God desires that you give so that he will be your treasure. See, when you add to the commandments of God the traditions of men, the intent of the law, love for God. I love God, therefore I'm going to act in purity. I love God, therefore I'm going to act modestly. I love God, therefore I'm going to give generously. That becomes obscured and a list of do's and don'ts that I can achieve and feel good about myself and don't have to do more becomes prominent in its place. And you end up missing the point of the law with the result that you honor God with your lips or with your tithes, but your heart is far from him. And all of your worship is vain and you're nothing but a hypocrite, a Pharisee. It's a dangerous thing to add to Scripture. Well, Jesus then provides an example of how the scribes and the Pharisees were doing that very thing. Verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, clearly this example would have meant more in first century Israel than it does today. We're not familiar with this concept of korban, so let me try and, and explain it to you just a bit. 
Korban comes from the Hebrew word for offering. And the concept arises from Leviticus 27-28 in a chapter that's dealing with the subject of vows. Hey, let me read you that passage. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether of man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. Well, according to the Mosaic law, a person could vow something, a house, a field, an animal, out of gratitude to God for some blessing received or hope to receive from God. And once that house, field, animal, anything was devoted to God, it could not be redeemed because it was no longer for profane, that is ordinary or non-sacred use. Rather, it was consecrated to the Lord. Well, the tradition of the elders had seized upon this law of vows and had run amok with it. According to one commentator, James Edwards, they had turned the law of Korban into something similar to our concept of deferred giving. Deferred giving in the sense of if I want to give my estate to uh, some charitable cause and I go and I have all of the legal paperwork uh, drawn up, yet I continue to live in my house and I continue to enjoy my estate until I die. And at that point, it passes on to that charitable cause. The same thing was going on in the tradition of Korban. Edwards writes this, Today, a person may will property to a charity or institution at his or her death, though retaining possession over the property and the proceeds of interest accruing from it until then. In the case of Korban, a person could dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them himself. So in the example that Jesus gives, a man who has aging and needy parents who need to be taken care of, but does not want to provide for them because he doesn't love them, but rather wants to spend his wealth on himself rather than to spend it on their care, he can take a loophole created by this rabbinical tradition. He simply goes to the priest, the local priest, and he dedicates his estate to God. He gets all the paperwork drawn up, thus retaining use of his estate for himself for as long as he lives, but preventing his parents from making any claim upon it whatsoever. Sort of like, well, I... You know, I'd like to help you, mom and dad, but I've gone and dedicated everything I own to God. And the scribes and the Pharisees were complicit in this. Jesus says, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother out of that dedicated estate. See what they had done? They had voided the clear command of God to honor your father and mother with a tradition called korban. They had obscured the intent of the law, love for neighbor, particularly love for your aging parents, in favor of an unbiblical tradition. And Jesus is clear that this is no isolated example. He says, you do all sorts of things like this. Well, finally, Jesus cuts through all the tradition and all of the Pharisaic legalistic nonsense, and he drives straight to the heart of the matter, which, as we have seen, is the matter of the heart. Verse 14, 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Then Mark adds, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. In these verses, we're going to conclude, I'm going to give you three massively important truths to understanding the purpose of the law and its relationship to the gospel. Truth number one, nothing is unclean in and of itself. This is so important. Jesus' pronouncement here was absolutely revolutionary for first century Jews. William Barclay called this, quote, well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. This blew their minds. But it did not represent a change in the essential nature of things. What I mean is this. Follow me. First century Jews thought certain things were unclean in and of themselves. There was something intrinsic about them that was defiling so that they could defile you from outside in, okay? Pork, reptiles, blood, Gentiles, vultures, shellfish, corpses, and a whole host of other things that were unclean. Just read Leviticus 11 and you'll see the list. To touch or to eat such things defiled a person because those things were unclean in themselves, That is, there was something intrinsic to their nature that was defiling. But Jesus flatly contradicts that way of thinking, and he says, nothing is unclean in and of itself. All foods, all drinks, all things are clean. Why? Because they're simply inanimate objects or organic material that passes through the mouth, through the stomach, and is expelled, and it doesn't touch the heart. Those things are not sinful. They are not unclean. Only creatures with reasonable souls can be unclean by committing sin. Only people and angels, that's it. Only people and angels can become unclean and defiled. A pig has never sinned against God. Furthermore, I don't think that Jesus is announcing that something has changed so as to alter the essential nature of these things. In other words, it's not that all foods, all drinks, all things have now become clean now that Jesus has come. I don't think that's what it is. Rather, I think Jesus is coming in and saying, these things have always been clean. You've just misunderstood the law. If they were unclean in and of themselves, they would still be unclean and we would still be forbidden to eat or to touch them. But that raises an important question some of you may be wondering. If pigs and shellfish, for instance, pork and shrimp, if they're not unclean 
in and of themselves, why did God say they were? Why did he forbid his people from touching them? That's a good question. Were you guys wondering that? It's a good question. Of course you were because you're intelligent people. This is where Jesus' statement goes to the heart of how we understand the intent and purpose of the law. So many of the rituals and regulations of the old covenant law were designed to be illustrations and object lessons of spiritual truths. The law was, as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10.1, but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The laws regarding ceremonial defilement and cleansing were designed to teach Israel the reality of sin and the way in which it defiles the human heart and the need for cleansing before a person could approach the living God. Pigs, shellfish, scavengers, okay? These are bottom feeders, and they feed upon filth. Israel was commanded not to touch or eat such things as an illustration that the people of God must not touch unclean things, i.e. sin, if we wish to enter into God's holy presence. By making the physical command, he's giving an object lesson of the spiritual reality. Touching a corpse rendered a person unclean because only those who are alive can enter into God's presence. You cannot be defiled by death and enter into God's holy presence. Blood was forbidden to be touched or eaten because of its close association with sacrifice and atonement. It's not unclean in and of itself. It's the association with atonement that makes it a most holy thing. It's in this way that the law taught spiritual truths by means of symbols and shadows and rituals and ceremonies. But what happened instead was that Israel, and specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, so focused upon the symbols and the shadows, the rituals and the ceremonies, that they altogether missed the realities that these symbols pointed to. They missed the forest For the trees. And the result was that they focused entirely upon external symbols and completely neglected the inward realities. That's how they became whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear clean and beautiful, but inwardly are full of all manner of defilement. They knew the law, but they did not understand the law. And we dare not make the same mistake. And Jesus' teaching in this passage is essential to avoiding the same error. Second truth. It's not external things that defile. The human heart is the source of all defilement. Nothing is unclean in itself except the heart of man. Jesus describes the heart here in terms of a ceaseless fountain of defilement and iniquity, just constantly gushing forth every conceivable kind of evil, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These things are what render a man unclean and unfit to stand in the presence of God. Eating pork or shrimp 
or touching a dead animal is not sin and does not defile and does not exclude us from entering into God's presence. But sexual immorality does. Greed does. Hatred and murder does. Covetousness and envy does. Deceit does. Foolishness does. If you're defiled by those things, you will not enter into the presence of God. If the heart is not changed, if the defilement of the heart is not cleansed, then we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven in the presence of the holy God. So what can change an unclean heart? Well, Jesus does not directly address the solution to the problem of man's defiled heart, but the solution is clear by implication from the context. The Pharisees and the scribes were very concerned about external things, the washing of hands, the clean and unclean foods, feastings and Sabbaths, etc. But these things had nothing to do with the real source of defilement, which is the heart. Therefore, the third truth is that external laws cannot cleanse the heart, and they were never intended to. If you read the Old Testament law and you conclude, well, if they had just obeyed all these commands, they would have been clean and acceptable in God's sight, you've misunderstood. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in the Old Testament, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Answer, no. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Or if you read the New Testament, and, and you come across all of these commands and this, this way of life that is presented to us, and you say, well, if I just obey these things and live in this way, then I will be clean. You've understood the New Testament wrongly. Jesus says in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, both Old Testament and New Testament are clear that we need an essential, fundamental change of nature, and both Testaments make clear that we cannot affect this change ourselves. We cannot, by the keeping of the law, change ourselves from bad trees into good trees. External laws are ineffective to cleanse the heart because what can our heart, which is a ceaseless fountain of iniquity, produce but more iniquity? It's a confusion of categories. The law was never designed to change the heart. You know what the law is? The law is a ruler. It can tell you whether you reach the required height or whether you fall short, but it cannot make you an inch taller. The law is like a standard for water purity. It can tell you whether the water flowing out of your heart reaches the required standard of purity or falls short, but it cannot make the water coming forth from the fountain of your heart more clean. That is what the Pharisees, both ancient and modern, fail to understand. What we need is for someone outside of us to purify the fountain of our hearts and make it clean. Well, how does that happen? I'll close with an answer from the lips of a man who was there that day when Jesus spoke 
about the defilement of the human heart. In Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem gathered for a council to decide on the question of whether or not Gentile converts to Christ needed to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. And there was great disagreement between these two opposing views. They were just shouting down one another and no resolution was in sight. One side said, yes, it is necessary to circumcise them in order, and order them to keep the law of Moses now that they have believed on Christ. If God said it then, it applies still today. Another side said, if you still think that it's necessary to keep the law of Moses now that we believed on Christ, you've missed the point of the law and you've missed the point of the gospel. And so they were raging against one another in Acts chapter 15. And after there had been much debate, the apostle Peter stood up and addressed the council. And you can imagine a hush falling over when a man like Peter stood to address them. And he says this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, listen, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And with this, the entire assembly fell silent. True righteousness does not come by keeping the law. True righteousness flows out of a heart that has been cleansed by faith and transformed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And until you've understood this, you have not understood the law and you have not understood the gospel. 